on Textbooked. Foreign policy is not just made by the president or the general secretary or the bigwig policymakers, but the foreign policy is being made and shaped by any number of people, some of whom never make it into the archival records, but we see in photographs and in newspaper clippings. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Lap Nguyen. And you're listening to Untextbooked. We all know that the Cold War was marked by a bitter rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. But did you know that citizens played a crucial role in bringing this war to an end? It's true. After World War II, the former NATO allies found themselves in an atmosphere of constant fear for national security, one that led to a dangerous nuclear arms race, sort of like a Western showdown with missiles pointed at each other instead of guns. That's a really interesting visual. How did everyday people manage to disarm these global superpowers? They'll have to listen to the episode for that. But I will say this, we tend to think about global crises in a really abstract way. We see it as something way beyond our reach. But the truth is, crises are just the culmination of small events that build to a climax. The Cold War was a result of decades of incremental mistrust and animosity between the West and the USSR. And its resolution would also be shaped by the small actions of countless individuals and events that we may never know. In this episode of Untextbooked, we're revisiting the Cold War. Our producer, Lap, interviews Professor Susan Colburn, author of Euro Missiles, The Nuclear Weapons That Nearly Destroyed NATO. They unpack the power of citizen protest during this era and what the resolution of this conflict means for us today. Well, hi, Professor Coburn. How are you doing? We are very happy to have you on our podcast. So thank you very much for joining us today on Untextbooked. I just wanted to start by setting up the stage a little bit. So a lot of people know the Cuban Missile Crisis as this high point during the Cold War, kind of the point of maximum tension. And then for a brief 10-year period following it, there seems to be kind of a thawing of relations. Can you set up the stage of what the world was like during the thawing period prior to the advent of this crisis unfolding? Absolutely. So the late 1950s and early 1960s were a period where the Cold War seemed really dangerous. You have the showdown between the superpowers over Berlin, a city that had been divided at the end of the Second World War with Nikita Khrushchev, Soviet Union, trying to squeeze the city, put pressure on the Western powers and their very precarious position in this island that was West Berlin. So you have these famous moments of real tense showdowns, like tanks 
pointed at one another at Checkpoint Charlie, one of the dividing lines in Berlin. You also have the Cuban Missile Crisis. This moment, these dangerous 13 days, famously, where it looked like there might be a nuclear war. Really scary stuff. And then shortly thereafter, relations seemed to get so much better. The Cold War seemed to recede somewhat. The United States and the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom signed an agreement to limit the testing of nuclear weapons, the Limited Test Ban Treaty in 1963. And as the 1960s wore on, people became preoccupied with other issues. The United States became embroiled in the war in Vietnam, itself, of course, a Cold War conflict, but a very different kind of Cold War conflict than those tense moments of the early 1960s. And so increasingly, you have a period in the late 1960s and into the 1970s where everyday people start to feel like the Cold War has kind of gone away in Europe, at least, right? I want to be very clear that the Cold War looked different in Europe than it did elsewhere in the world. I'm sure we can draw a very strong distinction between what the Cold War looked like in Vietnam in the 1960s, to give one example, versus what it looked like in Europe. But these diplomatic breakthroughs, you have all of these treaties and the recreation of formal diplomatic relations between West Germany and many of its neighbors in the late 1960s and early 1970s. All of this comes to be known as detente. Detente, also known as the relaxing of tension or hostility between nations. And so the Cold War really seems like maybe it's going away from Europe. It doesn't seem as dangerous as it had in the 1950s or the early 1960s. Yeah, you had President Richard Nixon meeting with the leaders of China and the leaders of the Soviet Union. So we can really see that thawing of relations there. So what exactly changed in the late 70s so that we were once again looking at the brink of nuclear catastrophe in the world? This is such a good question. By the late 1970s, as you say, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union are going from bad to worse. By the early 1980s, you have a genuine widespread fear that nuclear war is going to happen. If we think about the popular culture of the 1980s, you have tons of films and songs and comic books that the basic premise of the book is that a nuclear war breaks out either because a conflict somewhere boils over and the Soviet Union and the United States trade nuclear strikes, or in many of the more terrifying ones, just by a freak accident. A computer breaks in war games, right? A simulation of a war turns out to actually be a war, right? And so so you have lots of pretty terrifying (laughs) things that are in the popular mind in the early 1980s. So how does that change happen? Part of the story that I tell about the Euro missiles is one where these tensions evolve very gradually below the surface, and then they sort of break into the public consciousness. So there are many reasons why superpower relations or East-West relations look scary in the early 1980s. But one piece of the puzzle is these missiles that I write about called the Euro missiles. And so They were named this because they were stationed in Europe and could strike other targets in Europe. They were medium range or intermediate range or theater range (laughs) nuclear forces. There are lots of names for these missiles. But Euro missiles kind of encapsulates this. They were in Europe and might strike Europeans. So the deployment of these Euro missiles, first the Soviet decision to 
improve the medium range missiles that they had stationed in Europe since the late 1950s with these new SS 20s that had multiple warheads. This is taken as a sign by politicians and officials that the Soviet Union is trying to increase its power, its ability to put pressure on the Western Europeans. And NATO debates how they are going to respond. And what they come up with is an agreement that they call the dual track decision because it has two pieces, right? Two tracks, hence the name. The first is that they are going to deploy new ground-based nuclear weapons in Europe. So in the Federal Republic of Germany, Britain, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And this is the first time NATO is going to deploy this particular type of nuclear weapon, this genre or class of nuclear weapon, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they're going to reintroduce these missiles. And then on the second track, they are going to try and pursue talks with the Soviet Union to limit or get rid of these same nuclear weapons. So they're trying to convince, either meet the Soviet Union's weapons or convince the Soviet Union to remove their weapons. So they're trying to offset the threat in one way or another. And there's a lot of debate about whether this will work and whether they're really responding to the Soviet Union's new missiles or whether they are just making improvements they need to make so that their overall strategy works. But the long story short is that then the arrival of these new missiles, these plans that they announced in late 1979 to introduce these two types of missiles, the Pershing 2s and ground-launched cruise missiles or Glickums, terrifies so many Western citizens. And so in the early 1980s, you start to see big public demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of citizens in West Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Italy, the list goes on, going out into the streets with placards, denouncing nuclear weapons, denouncing NATO's deployments, worried about what this will mean. And this happens against a broader backdrop where U.S. relations with the Soviet Union seem worse. So things like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which happens right after NATO makes this decision, all of this leads to what we might anecdotally call bad vibes, <laughs> where everyone is a little bit worried about what is going to happen. Yeah. And I want to really focus on NATO's dual track plan, because a lot of historians tend to point out as kind of that being that initial spark that really sets off the fight, primarily because you need both actors to kind of be in place for it to really sprawl into a conflict. And this was NATO's response. And while NATO put forth this response, I know in your book, you kind of pull back and underneath that unified front, or at least what appears to be a unified front, was a lot of politicking and there was a lot of tensions. And you actually made a note that this crisis actually threatened to undermine the alliance. In fact, it was to the point where there was a real possibility that it could dissolve. So can you peel back the hood a little and give us kind of an understanding of what was going on through the minds of political leaders when they were trying to put together this plan, this response to the Soviet Union's threats? Absolutely. So in some ways, the story of the Euro missiles is a continuation of a broader story about how an unwieldy and complicated alliance like NATO is going to fight the Cold War, to wage the Cold War. How are they best going to defend themselves against the Soviet Union? How do they understand the threat posed by the Soviet Union? And so there's a lot of prehistory of the Euro missiles, a lot of baggage, political and otherwise, that comes into 
the decision-making of the alliance. And so if we think about the way that NATO is structured, if you were going into an ideal world and you were going to design an alliance, NATO during the Cold War might be the worst design. You have an incredibly powerful member in the United States, but the United States is the furthest geographically from the front line that you want to defend, right? That dividing line, the Iron Curtain separating Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So you need to figure out how you are going to have the United States project its power over all of the countries in Western Europe, and then, of course, in North America as well, with Canada, a member of NATO, too. So it's really difficult. And then you need all of the other countries that are in NATO. So after 1955, there's 15 of them, 15 members total. That's including the United States. So you need all the members of NATO to believe that the protection provided mostly by the United States is credible, that the Soviet Union is going to believe that it's credible, and so will be deterred from doing anything scary or dangerous or reckless. You also have to hope that your voters, enough of your voters, believe that this policy is sound, that they continue voting for you and continue supporting it. It's really complicated. So NATO ends up with this strategy in 1967. Whole backstory of wrangling there also, but they end up in 1967 with this strategy that they call flexible response. And flexible response means different things to different people. But the basic idea underpinning it is that in order to make that protection underwritten by the power of the United States believable, that they are going to have a strategy that will gradually escalate so that they're able to meet a range of different potential threats or pressure from the Soviet Union. And that this graduated ladder of escalation is going to make things work. The problem with that is that then everyone needs to agree that NATO has enough weapons in their arsenal to actually make that strategy work. And so here's where we start to have some of the problems. You have two real problems that happen in the early 1970s that help set the stage for the dual track decision. The first is that the United States and the Soviet Union start arms control talks on strategic weapons. So these are a different class of nuclear weapons, the big ones that could be traded between the United States and the Soviet Union directly. But nuclear weapons don't automatically come with a sort of class printed on them, right? Those categories are defined. So the United States and the Soviet Union, their negotiating teams needed to agree about what would count as a strategic weapon. Some of Washington's allies in NATO tried to get Soviet weapons in Europe that could strike Western Europe included. The Soviets tried to get U.S. forces, so aircraft and sea-launched capabilities, things that we know as forward-based systems because they were forward from the United States based in Europe. The Soviets tried to get those included, and ultimately neither of those get included. So you have an agreement in 1972 that Richard Nixon and Leonid Brezhnev signed in one of these summit moments that is seen as a hallmark of detente, that relations are getting better. They signed this agreement, SALT One, that puts a cap on strategic weapons. But it means that when the Soviet Union deploys these SS-20s, these new kind of scary medium-range missiles I mentioned earlier, the Soviet Union hasn't actually done anything wrong, at least not by the strictest letter of the arms control agreements that had been made. So some allied officials in NATO argue that the Soviet Union had broken the spirit of the agreement. Other people argue that it's just a routine modernization. 
right? The Soviet Union has new ways to make nuclear weapons. And so, of course, they are just going to replace the old ones with the new ones because the old ones had a pesky habit of blowing up on the launch pad and, you know, things you don't really want your nuclear weapons to do. (laughs) So they have a long debate about just how dangerous are these new weapons. And ultimately, it's only when the government in the United States, the administration of Jimmy Carter, concludes in 1978 that the West Germans in particular are so concerned about the protection afforded by NATO, provided by NATO, that if they don't do something to shore up West German confidence, they could start to see an erosion of all of the basic principles that had underpinned the alliance. And so it's really, really, really important that it is the West Germans Nearly everything about the way the transatlantic system that emerged at the end of World War II in the 1940s, after World War II had come to a close, nearly everything about that system is based on the need to keep Germany and German power, which had been so dangerous early in the 20th century, under wraps to make sure that the Germans could not reassert the kind of power that they had in the First World War or the Second World War, but also to harness the Western half of Germany's power into NATO. And so doing so meant that you constantly needed, if you were an allied policymaker, to make sure that West Germans were happy with the deal that they had. And so what Carter and his team worry about in 1978 is that maybe the Germans are so unhappy that the whole fabric of the agreement will start to unravel. Yeah. And kind of one of the big components of that was not only trying to kind of maintain the trust in NATO, the most important part of that was not only that the public officials in these countries in Europe maintain their trust that the U.S. will defend them. But most importantly, as you mentioned, many of these are liberal democracies. And so there was kind of a very strong need for their citizens to believe that they will be protected by the U.S. And one of the biggest point that you made in in the book here was that kind of this crisis really highlighted that even though it was an international conflict and even though there were grand alliances and their political leaders pulling the strings, it was the grassroots efforts by these citizen activists in many of these countries that actually changed the outcome of history. And so can you kind of take a dive into kind of in what ways did the citizen protests kind of across Europe help change that political landscape? Yeah, so this is such an interesting puzzle, and I think it is a really hard one to prove. How do you prove where ideas come from? So you have a really fascinating political landscape in the early 1980s where after a period of relative calm in Europe where, as we were just talking about, people felt like the Cold War had receded, now the Cold War is suddenly back. And so you have people of all ages, all political persuasions, communists, Catholic priests, students, grandmothers, veterans, acting soldiers, right? Just a whole broad cross-section of society worried about some of the basic elements of international security, worried about the dangers of nuclear weapons, which, you know, if you think about for any length of time, I think most normal people come to be a little bit concerned (laughs) about what might happen. 
You have people concerned about the fact that the confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States and between the Warsaw Pact and NATO as the bigger alliances is really starting to deepen again. It seems like those tensions are getting worse. You have concerns about whether the promises that Western officials are making with things like the protection of the United States or the protection of NATO provided in large part by the United States, whether those can be trusted. Or is a solution that NATO proposes to station new missiles in Western Europe among all of these voters? Not every voter believes that that's going to make them safer. Some of them believe that more nuclear weapons down the road from them mean that if and when the Soviet Union decides to launch its nuclear weapons, they might do so right at those handy missiles down the road. So you have a huge swell of popular protest, anti-nuclear campaigns, grassroots activism in the early 1980s. And the impact of those protests is huge. I mean, they make the nightly news you have regular segments on the news and in newspapers, people arguing about the basic strategy of flexible response, about whether deterrence is moral, whether it accords with people's religious beliefs, whether it is a responsible way to protect oneself. So you really have people debating fundamental aspects of the world around them. But what is really hard as a historian to prove is how much those protests actually influence policymakers and how much policymakers, whether they were military planners or elected officials, shared those same concerns because they too were humans, right? There were also people who maybe if they thought about nuclear weapons for any length of time didn't like what they heard. And so here you have tons of debate. And so often people who were involved in the protest movement really argue forcefully that they were crucial in changing the trajectory of the Cold War. On the other hand, you have historians and contemporaries who were involved in these debates who argue that many of these policymakers held the same views. And so you actually have a, a sort of convergence where they agree with one another. And I think to some degree, it's not a satisfying answer, but you have a little bit of both, right? It's a really complicated situation with so many players. But one example that I can give that's quite striking is the position of President Ronald Reagan. So when Reagan was elected in 1980 and then came into office in January of 1981, he was seen as incredibly hawkish. Right? Uh, people accused him of being a nuclear cowboy, that he was saber-rattling, making big, big threats about destroying the Soviet Union. And fears of what Reagan might do were everywhere in the protest movement. So if you look at pictures of some of these demonstrations, people would come to marches and rallies with signs criticizing Reagan, with paper mache models of Reagan riding nuclear missiles, if you know the scene from Dr. Strangelove, which is sort of the original nuclear movie in many ways, right, of Slim Pickens riding the missile, yeah, that kind of imagery of Reagan really tapping into this sort of cowboy aura that he had around him. But Reagan's own views on nuclear weapons were much more complicated. And he talked openly, even in those early days when he was saying that the Soviet system should be left on the ash heap of history, he was also talking about getting rid of nuclear weapons in the world. And so making sense of what Reagan believed is a difficult puzzle. Historians argue about it. They will continue to argue about it, I'm sure. 
But Margaret Thatcher, who was the British prime minister at the time, who agreed with Reagan about nearly everything, gave an interview in 1990 where she said that the only thing that she and Reagan really ever disagreed about was the role of nuclear weapons in the world. And she believed that they were absolutely necessary because they were the best insurance to make sure that there was peace, that there was no more war, and that that should be the overriding priority of Western policymakers was to avoid war. But in her opinion, Reagan didn't agree with her. And Reagan's end goal was not the same as hers. It was a world without nuclear weapons. And so it's always going to be contested. But I think it's a very telling admission from someone like Thatcher that there were, even among policymakers, huge disagreements and debates about the role nuclear weapons could and should play in the world. Yeah. And I also kind of another striking example of whether or not it's, you know, in the debate of whether or not it's convergence of ideas between politicians and the protest movements was kind of these protests over the production of a neutron bomb. And one of the big protests kind of broke out throughout Europe. I know there were protests in Denmark, there was many in Germany. And subsequently, it seemed, or at least it appeared, President Carter actually decided to kind of shelve the production of neutron bombs. I'm just curious as to kind of what side of the camp you're on in these debates, whether kind of you believe that these protests did kind of push the needle of history or whether or not it was simply just a convergence of ideas. I'm just curious to hear your take on the matter. It's a good question, and I'm glad you're pushing me. I'm going to give you a classic historian answer and say that it's complicated, but here's why. The protests absolutely mattered because they demonstrated a widespread dissatisfaction with many of the underlying and foundational principles that had made the transatlantic order after 1945. So when I'm talking about foundational principles, I mean things like questioning whether the United States could actually provide sufficient security, whether a strategy based on nuclear weapons was responsible, or whether it was actually going to invite more problems, more insecurity. It's clear that the Soviet system is not exactly doing well. A prime example we might point to is the introduction of martial law in Poland in late 1981, which is a response to the fact that you have dissatisfied workers and a grassroots labor movement bubbling up. So it's not as if the Soviet Union and its allies are sort of marching off into the distance in harmony like everything is going well in the early 1980s. So you have questions about how dangerous the Soviet Union really is. You have questions about whether or not the Cold War is even worth fighting anymore. You have hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. So the sheer numbers, I mean, it's hard for any observer, whether they're in government or not, to realize that there's a really big sense of discomfort, of discontent with the way foreign policy is being made, the decisions that have been made, and what it means for security, whether that's personal security, national security, international security, a whole bunch of different considerations there. And so the protests matter so much because of what they symbolize, what they represent. But you, part of what happens is that you also have people in office who take many of those same ideas. So some of them are convinced by the protesters. Some of them are bringing in pre-existing convictions that they share with the protesters. And then they're starting to make policy based on that. So one of the things that is quite striking is that in 1984, the missiles are incredibly controversial 
leading up to late 1983 when they are going to be deployed. But in late 1983, the British Parliament, the Italian Parliament, the West German Bundestag, their parliament, they all agree to take these missiles on board. The Soviet Union walks out of the arms control talks that had been taking place. And the grassroots movement to stop NATO's deployments fizzles. And so you have a really rapid change. But in 1984, the experiences of the previous few years have left allied officials in NATO convinced that they need to re-engage with the Soviet Union, that they need to double down on their efforts at dialogue with the Soviet Union to improve relations with the Soviet Union and its allies. And so there is this tandem relationship where the protests matter and they set the conversation and they change the conversation and they draw attention to how much simmering dissatisfaction there is. But you also have policymakers who are so instrumental in the story. And if we think about how the story of the Euro missiles ends up unfolding in the late 1980s, moving towards an agreement that Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the Soviet Union, sign in 1987, this agreement that is going to get rid of every weapon in this class, every intermediate range, nuclear and conventional, actually, missile is what they get rid of in the INF Treaty. That agreement is the ideas that Reagan and Gorbachev bring to the table are reflect similar impulses to many of the protesters. There's a lot of evidence that Gorbachev, for instance, took on ideas about collective security and those sorts of ideas into his thinking in 1986 and 1987. But Gorbachev and Reagan were so instrumental in getting that agreement. And so you have this interplay. And I think that it's not always the most satisfying answer, but this is why history can be so fascinating, because we're teasing out the relationship between all of these things that sort of happen at the same time. And Sometimes they look like they're related and they're not, and they're moving in parallel together. And sometimes they're crashing into one another and directly informing one another. And so part of the story of how the conversation changes in the 1980s, there are bits of it that are policymakers 100%, and there are bits of it that are absolutely the protesters. And it makes the story of the end of the Cold War such an interesting one, in part just because it's not hard to imagine any number of other ways the Cold War might have ended. And it's pretty remarkable that it ended the way that it did. Yeah. And I want to kind of take a step over to the Soviet side of the conflict, because you brought up Mikhail Gorbachev, who was very instrumental in helping kind of bring about a peaceful resolution to the Cold War and the Euromissile crisis. So I wanted to kind of give our audience an understanding of the shift in the Soviet mindset, especially under Gorbachev. What was his approach to the conflict and how did that differ from his predecessors and how did that ultimately help put forth a peaceful resolution to the conflict? Gorbachev is crucial to the way that the story unfolds, but Gorbachev was also a little bit of a mystery. So, now, if we think about how we look back on the 1980s and the end of the Cold War, we think of Gorbachev as being fundamentally different from the men who came before him. So in some ways, that was obvious. He was a generational change. He was much younger than the preceding three general secretaries, all of whom were in ill health and pretty old by the time <laughs> they were general secretary. Gorbachev, by contrast, 
when he rises to the top post in 1985, he's in his 50s. And so he seems, he's a huge generational shift. Supporters of Gorbachev in the West and in the Soviet Union also tried to draw a distinction between Gorbachev and what came before him. So people tended to dismiss Brezhnev, Andropov, and Chernyanko as a period of stagnation, old thinking, nothing was changing, Soviet circumstances were getting worse, but they couldn't get the Soviet Union out of this situation. And all of Gorbachev's predecessors understood the problems facing the Soviet Union and did look for a way out. Everything sort of goes up to 11 when Gorbachev comes into power. Within six months of having become general secretary, he had turned out an incredible number of attractive offers. He had offered to stop nuclear testing for a period of time. He had offered a number of deals to get rid of and limit various pieces of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, including the missiles that had been so contentious facing Western Europe. So as Gorbachev is churning all of these offers out, Western officials are debating. Every Soviet leader back to Stalin had offered these sort of appealing things in the hopes of driving a wedge into the NATO alliance, splitting the allies from one another, making the most of the fact that politics in a democratic system are often a little chaotic and the Soviet Union could harness that to their advantage. So they go through this whole debate. Is Gorbachev new? Is Gorbachev old? Is he doing the same things that his predecessors did? Is he representing new ideas? Even people who worked for Gorbachev didn't necessarily know. In 1986, 1987, they wondered where Gorbachev was going with this. We know now, hindsight is a beautiful thing, we know now that Gorbachev was willing to consider dramatic change. But in some ways, Gorbachev also presided over a situation where the process got away from him. So he didn't intend to dissolve the Soviet Union's grip on Eastern Europe. He didn't intend to dissolve the Soviet Union, but Glasnost and Perestroika, the flagship programs of the Gorbachev years of openness and transparency, they changed many things about the way Soviet power operated in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union itself. So Gorbachev is a bit of a puzzle in that respect. But if we come back to the immediate story of INF and how the INF treaty happens, Gorbachev is instrumental. So I said earlier, right, that the Soviet Union had walked away from arms control talks with the United States in 1983. They come back in 1985. That's actually an agreement that Chernyanko, Gorbachev's short-lived predecessor, is responsible for. But it coincides almost directly with when Gorbachev becomes general secretary because Chernyanko is dead. So talks reopen in 1985, but they're these weird package talks. They call them umbrella talks because they include a few different pieces. There's a component dealing with these intermediate range weapons. There's a component dealing with strategic weapons. And then there's a component dealing with defense and space issues, which is essentially about Star Wars. That's the Strategic Defense Initiative, a space-based system created by the Reagan administration to protect the United States from attack. Although fun fact, the name was inspired by the popular movie franchise. And yes, they did shoot down missiles using lasers. So you have these really complicated talks. But the idea of the Soviet negotiating position is that you're only going to get a deal if there's progress on all of these issues. And so the talks, they go on. So they're talking about all of these different issues in separate pieces of these umbrella talks. But progress is pretty slow. 
And then Reagan and Gorbachev meet in Reykjavik in late 1986, and everything changes. They get so close to a deal that is going to dramatically reduce the number of nuclear weapons. They're talking about a nuclear-free world and how they both endorse this idea. And they get incredibly close to an agreement that will get rid of INF missiles in Europe. And then the whole thing falls apart because Reagan won't budge on SDI. So that pesky Star Wars is bad. (laughs) But after that, everyone starts to kind of panic about what that will mean. But Gorbachev, they stick with the package. Until early 1987, when finally Gorbachev, with advice from some of his chief aides, decides that they need an agreement on INF because they need to buy some breathing space for the regime. They want to reduce the threat of U.S. missiles, the Pershing twos particularly, targeting the Soviet Union. They don't have the money to continue the arms race, right? There's lots of different pieces. Gorbachev's own thinking about nuclear weapons had changed because of the catastrophic accident at Chernobyl had happened the previous year. So you have all these different reasons why Gorbachev is rethinking. And so in February of 1987, Gorbachev decides to untie the package, which means they can get a separate agreement on INF. And that really is the pivotal hinge. That changes the momentum. It still takes a lot of time to hammer out these agreements. They spend the rest of the year hammering out an agreement. But that moment, the fact that Gorbachev decides to untie the package, is critical in bringing about an agreement in late 1987. Wow. And, you know, as a historian, looking at the big picture of the Euro missile crisis, what lessons can we as citizens of liberal democracies kind of really take away from from this very long and tumultuous period of our history? I think the biggest thing that I hoped that people would take away from the book when I was writing it is that the way that things ended up, that NATO prevailed and then ultimately expanded in the 1990s to include former members of the Warsaw Pact, as well as former republics that had been part of the Soviet Union, that that conclusion was never inevitable. It wasn't foreordained or obvious. And it's really tempting to read what we know now back into the past to say that, of course, NATO was going to survive the Cold War. NATO was obviously better positioned than the Warsaw Pact. The Soviet system had all of these troubles. Communism was unpopular. But if you go back to the 1970s and 1980s, NATO's problems were also significant. The economic situation in many democratic countries, particularly in the 1970s, was difficult. Those difficult economic times made it hard for governments to secure support for the defense program that they thought was necessary. You have, as we've discussed, waning public support for various critical pieces of the transatlantic order and what NATO rests upon. And so you have a situation that's much more contingent. And so it was always possible that NATO might not have survived these difficulties. NATO might not have survived these trials and tribulations. And so capturing some of that uncertainty again and making sure that we remember it in our own time, I think is critical, particularly with an institution like NATO, where people are always speculating that it is in crisis, that it's on the verge of falling apart, that there's a rift, a schism, you know, pick your dramatic word to illustrate that somebody isn't happy with somebody else in the alliance. But not all of those moments of crisis were created equal. 
And so some of them are routine because an alliance with many members, many of them democracies, is always going to be a bit of a cumbersome, fragile arrangement. But some of those problems were much more widespread. And the Euro missiles, to me, was one such reminder of how deeply contested aspects of the Cold War were for decades. And the Euro missiles is one way that we can tell that story about how people debated the very basic principles and tried to make sense of how to make themselves safe in a world with nuclear weapons. I think it's a great reminder that foreign policy is not just made by the president or the general secretary or, you know, the bigwig policymakers, but that foreign policy is being made and shaped by any number of people, some of whom never make it into the archival records, but we see in photographs and in newspaper clippings. But that foreign policy is really not just about the highest levels of power, but there's a big conversation about foreign policy. Thank you very much, Professor Coborn, for joining us today on Textbooked. Thank you. So Lap, after this conversation, what are you walking away with? One of the big takeaways I had from this conversation was that in the end, every little thing mattered. We had continued efforts from the top and this continual push at the grassroots level by activists from the bottom to really seek a peaceful resolution to this ongoing conflict and ultimately a peaceful resolution to the end of the Cold War. And so it also kind of really highlights how we see history as this kind of big thing where there are big events that happens, but it's the countless people whose names never made it to the history books that really are the drivers of world events and the real change makers in the world. Thanks so much, Lab. Our producer, Lap Nguyen, is a junior at Harvard University. Susan Colburn is the associate director of the Triangle Institute for Security Studies, also known as TISS, based at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. She is a diplomatic and international historian who is interested in questions of strategy and security in the atomic age. You can follow her on Twitter at S.E. Colburn. That's S-E-C-O-L-B-O-U-R-N. We've included a link to her work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're looking at the impact the American Civil War continues to have today. Those who went to the Capitol and tried to lead an insurrection, those who deny elections, what's their motivating factor? This replacement theory, that they're going to be replaced by other people who are coming into our society who are somehow going to take away what they have. It's the change in our society that motivates fear, hatred, and this kind of anti-democratic behavior that we see in the 1870s and that we see today. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernando Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. 
Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.